You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court expanded religious liberties, including one that struck another blow to the contraceptive mandate in Obamacare. In a 7-2 vote, the court upheld the Trump administration's expansion of the religious exemption to the mandate, giving employers a broad right to refuse to offer birth control through their health plans. It was the third time the Supreme Court has ruled in a fractious debate over the contraceptive mandate. And during the oral arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts expressed some frustration that neither side seemed to want to work the problem out. Well, the problem is that neither side in this debate wants the accommodation to work. The one side doesn't want it to work because they want to say the mandate is required. And the other side doesn't want it to work because they want to uh, uh, impose the mandate. Uh, Is it really the case that there is no way to resolve those differences? But Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who dissented in the case with Justice Sonia Sotomayor, conveyed her concern for the women who would immediately lose access to free contraception, as many as 126,400, according to a government estimate. At the end of the day, the government is throwing to the wind the women's entitlement to seamless, no cost to them. It is requiring those women to pay for contraceptive services. Joining me is Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. In three cases involving religion this term, the decisions expanded religious liberty. Is the line between separation of church and state moving or blurring? So as I see it, it's worth distinguishing among these three cases in the sense that decisions involving uh, the Catholic schools and teachers and the ministerial exception That case is best seen as involving and vindicating the separation of church and state. That is, if you think about what the the core idea in the separation of church and state is that the government should lack the power to decide who's going to be a minister or a bishop. I mean, if you think of the oldest church-state controversies that we have are when kings wanted to decide who was going to run the church. And the principle that was um, applied in in the schools cases today should be seen as a, a decision that affirmed the separation of church and state. It affirmed that secular and civil courts shouldn't be interfering or inserting themselves into essentially religious questions. Now, let's move to the a Little Sisters case. That case, at this point, since it's been going on for so long, is really a case about administrative law and procedure. But if you scrape off the top, get down a little deeper, It is a case about whether the government's allowed to accommodate religion. But in the American tradition, we've never thought that the separation of church and state prevents accommodations. We've sometimes said that the the Constitution doesn't require them, and we've said in some contexts that even if you have a religious objection to a law, you're not constitutionally entitled to an exemption. But when legislatures or government officials craft laws in such a way that religious people are accommodated, in our tradition, again, we haven't thought that violates the separation of church and state. The case that represents, I think, the most kind of striking development is the Espinoza case from Montana, which you mentioned about the Blaine Amendments and the funding of religious schools. As you know, there was a there was a time in American constitutional law in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s when people thought that the a lot of justices thought too that the, the separation of church and state required that the government not fund not even advance in any way, even indirectly. 
the missions of religious schools. And now where the doctrines move there is that so long as the government is being neutral uh, and treating private and secular alternatives alike, that this kind of cooperation is okay. But certainly I think there are, there are lines that are kind of universally recognized in addition to the, to the ones that were in the ministerial exception uh, cases today. Uh, all the justices would agree that the government could never require or, or coerce uh, involvement in religious activities or prayer uh, or anything of that kind. I think uh, all the justices agree as they should, that the government shouldn't have any role in deciding what a particular church's um, liturgy or rituals or ministerial training should be. So in a sense, I think we're we're arriving at a place that is consistent with the historical understanding of what the important principle of church-state separation involved, which was keeping political and religious authority distinct. And I think we're kind of moving away from the view that, again, was probably on offer in the 1960s and 70s, which was hostile to any form of sort of cooperation between faith and the public square. Let's discuss the cases separately now. So the case involving the contraceptive mandate, the Trump administration expanded the ability to opt out of paying for contraceptive coverage from houses of worship to include publicly traded companies and universities with religious or moral objections to contraception. Tell us about that decision. The court's ruling was focused primarily on whether or not the administration followed the correct procedures when it created this accommodation. So it's mainly an administrative law opinion. The court's opinion is not really about whether or not this exemption is a good idea. Now, as you said, the Trump administration expanded the religious exemption that the Supreme Court had affirmed in Hobby Lobby, for example, several years ago to include entities that had, quote, moral, not just religious, but moral objections to providing contraception coverage in their insurance policies. Reasonable people can disagree about whether that expansion is good policy. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which arguably does require an exemption for religious employers, wouldn't apply to employers that have moral but not religious objections. So the accommodation that was provided does go beyond what the federal religious freedom law arguably requires. But in a sense, that's fine. The question is just whether the administration kind of followed the correct procedure for creating this exemption. I've been talking to Professor Richard Garnett of the Notre Dame Law School about cases involving religious liberties the Supreme Court handed down to. Rick, you said that the case involving the contraceptive mandate was basically an administrative law case. How did Justice Thomas answer the claims that the Trump administration had not followed the correct procedures? Yeah, so there's a, a law called the Administrative Procedure Act, which, and there's other sort of precedents and practices that require certain pathways to be followed before administrative rules are changed. The challengers to this exemption said that the administration kind of didn't dot all the I's and cross all the T's that were required, and Justice Thomas for the court said, yes, they did, that there wasn't any kind of unlawful departure from the procedures that are required in order for an agency to change its rules. You know, the idea here is that, you know, it's often the case, and we might well see this in a couple months, that when a new administration comes in, it has different priorities and agencies adjust their rules. We want to make sure they don't change their rules in kind of a haphazard or random fashion. And so courts do want to make sure that they follow the proper procedures. And here, again, whether one likes the new accommodation or not, 
the question is really, well, is this administration following the correct procedure to put into place the rules that it wanted? And we've seen in some other cases the court telling the administration that it hadn't followed the proper procedures, right? In the in the census case or in the recent case about the DACA, we had instances where the court told the administration, you didn't do this right. But in this case, the court thought the administration had followed the proper procedures and that the accommodation was therefore permissible. The court didn't say that the accommodation was required by the Constitution, just that it's permissible. Justices Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer joined the majority, but Kagan wrote a concurring opinion, and she said the lower courts could still consider arguments that the administration didn't engage in reasoned decision-making. What is she referring to here? So in administrative law, you have questions about sort of following the correct procedures, but you also have questions that involve making sure that agencies are, as she put it, engaged in reasoned decision-making, that they're not being kind of arbitrary and capricious, that the record's built up well enough. And I take her point to be that since this particular case involved challenges more to the procedure that the administration had followed, that it would still be possible, you know, again, in in a later stage in this litigation, if this litigation keeps on going, to say, okay, maybe it is true that the proper pathways were followed, but it's still the case that the agencies have to provide some evidence that they rationally considered all factors and balanced all costs and benefits, and that maybe that didn't happen here. So for some who are wondering, like, will this case about the contraception mandate ever end, I think that Justice Kagan's point might have been, well, it's not necessarily over yet. There's still other other bases to challenge it. But Justice Kagan agrees that the, the challenge in this case uh, didn't go through. What happens now? I thought that this was okay. They're good to go on this now. I don't know what's going to happen next. I take her to be saying this is something that could happen, but obviously the, it's, a, it's a question whether litigants will decide to bring a different challenge, again, one that's more substantive and less procedural, to this particular accommodation. And of course, you know, given that we're coming up on an election and there might well be a change in administration, you could very well see a new administration trying to change the very regulations that were at issue in this case. So we'll have to wait and see. Explain one thing. Let's say you have a publicly traded company and they say, we have moral objections to contraceptives. Is that all they have to do? Do they have to do anything to prove that they actually have those and they're not just trying to get away with not paying for contraceptive coverage? Yeah, generally speaking, in cases involving religious exemptions, courts may and do inquire into whether the claim is, quote, sincere. So there has to be some evidence that the asserted objection is, you know, being made in good faith. The question isn't whether the objectors are right. You know, the courts aren't supposed to get into the question of, you know, what's the moral right answer to this question. But you're allowed to ask whether a claimant is sincere. Courts do this all the time. If you think back to the Hobby Lobby case, um, you know, there was plenty of evidence that the owners of Hobby Lobby did have certain religious beliefs that and they were representing them accurately and so on. But, you know, presumably, if uh, Ford Motor Company were to come forward and say, uh, we don't want to do this anymore, we don't want to provide these benefits uh, because we have a religious objection, a court would say, well, show me one bit of evidence that you have this objection or that you've ever tried to assert it in other cases. And I suspect the court would be pretty skeptical about that. And of course, it's not clear at all that publicly traded corporations have any incentive 
to gain this particular accommodation. Since there's a lot of evidence that um, providing contraceptive coverage to employees saves corporations money. So that would suggest that when a corporation does assert an objection, like Hobby Lobby did, they probably are sincere because they're not trying to, again, they're not trying to get some kind of financial advantage. I remember that during the oral arguments, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who during this argument, I believe, was taking part from the hospital, was very fiery in her questioning. How how would you characterize her dissent? I would say it was kind of in keeping with the, the tone of our argument. You know, um, this is in many ways, I mentioned a couple minutes ago that this case has been going on for a long time. And Justice Ginsburg dissented in the Hobby Lobby case. She thinks that the the policy of the contraception coverage mandate, I think she thinks it's a wise policy and that it's certainly legally permissible. Uh, she objected here quite strongly, obviously, to the administration's decision to to revise and to expand the accommodation that had been put in place by Obama. So she was very direct in her disagreement. And let's turn now to the second case, the ministerial exception. Explain the court's decision. Sure. So these are uh, two cases that presented basically the same issue. They involved parochial school teachers at, at Catholic schools who'd been fired, who had then filed employment discrimination claims. And the question was whether these claims can go forward, given that eight years ago, a unanimous Supreme Court said that the First Amendment doesn't allow employment discrimination lawsuits to be used as a way to kind of second guess religious schools decisions about who will or who will not be, they use the term minister, but you know, a leader, a teacher, somebody who plays an important religious role. Um, that was eight years ago. And the court, again, had been unanimous in a case involving a teacher in a Lutheran school. The question here was whether these teachers were any different from the teacher in the case eight years ago. Seven justices, so the, the five conservatives plus Justice, Justices Kagan and Breyer, agreed that this case presented basically the same issue as the Hosanna Tabor case eight years ago, and that because the First Amendment, both you know the separation of church and state and the free exercise clause, the First Amendment tells governments that they don't get to decide who should or who should not be involved in religious education and leadership, so that these lawsuits can't go forward. Because if you think about it, an employment discrimination lawsuit brought by a religious school teacher is basically a request to a court to tell a religious school hey, this person gets to be a religious school teacher for you, whether you like it or not. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had said that these cases could go forward because the Ninth Circuit adopted what the court told us was a a narrow version of this ministerial exception doctrine. And so I think, from my perspective anyway, the, the way to see these cases that came down today is that the court basically said, we, we meant what we said eight years ago. The Ninth Circuit was wrong to shrink this doctrine, and we're just reaffirming what we said before, namely that there are some employees of religious institutions who are involved in the religious mission of those institutions, and that the principle of religious freedom and the principle of church-state separation doesn't allow courts to interfere in these decisions about who should or should not be a minister. Did the majority opinion give any guidance for who is a teacher, who is involved in religious education? Does it have to be more than just a teacher? In a sense, what the majority said today was 
you can't reduce this question to kind of a bright line test. You can't reduce it to the presence or the absence of any one particular factor. So, for example, it doesn't matter, or at least it's not the only thing that matters, whether somebody has a title of minister or pastor or rabbi, because after all, there's lots of religious organizations that might be newer or unfamiliar or just different. They don't use those terms. And so you wouldn't want to adopt a rule that kind of privileged religions that use certain titles over ones that didn't. And the court also said, like, there's a real danger to make the test depend on, well, how much religious training does the person have to have? Because then you'd have courts trying to evaluate, you know, what counts as religious training and whatnot. So what the court did is really just say, you have to look at the function. You have to look at what the employee is being asked to do by the religious organization. And if the employee's role is connected to the religious organization's mission, then that employee should be covered. So it's not a bright line test. It's more uh, the court saying, look, we articulated this principle eight years ago. The Ninth Circuit tried to convert that principle into a more of a kind of mechanical test. And the court here said, that's not what we want. We want courts to be appropriately deferential to the fact that different religions have different ways of arranging themselves and that courts should ask the more general question, is this employee playing a part in the religious mission of the institution? And if the employee is, then it should be up to the religious institution to decide, for better or worse, whether to hire or fire that person. Thanks, Rick. That's Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.